Before I begin the sermon, I have to acknowledge my debt to the Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Palmer, who wrote a book exploring how Luther and the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard interpreted Genesis 22. Not only did her book aid my study of this passage, I also shamelessly stole my sermon title from the title of her book. On October 27, 1539, Martin Luther began lecturing on Genesis 22 amid another outbreak of plague. This was the third time in Luther's lifetime that plague had struck Wittenberg, creating an outpouring of fresh doubts about God's goodness. In a pre-scientific age, where epidemiology was poorly understood, many explanations were promulgated for the plague's reappearance. Some saw it as a punishment from God. Others as just part of being human. And still, some sought to blame it on those on society's margins, such as Jews. Jews were frequent targets. Amid all this, Luther sought to calm the fears of his students, and likely his own fears, saying, I am not lecturing because I want to keep you here at a time when there is fear about the danger of a pestilential plague. For if a plague is imminent, everyone who wishes should take flight, especially those who are fearful. As for me, I do not fear a raging pestilence at the present time, but believe that fear itself is the chief cause of this calamity. Now we know that fear doesn't biologically cause sickness. But Luther is on to something. Fear displaces trust and love and makes it less likely we will do the right thing for our neighbor. In an age of terrors like the one Luther lived in, where there were plagues, Turks were threatening Europe, social unrest between peasants and lords, internal divisions among European princes, and increasing religious hostility, not to mention Luther's own periodic fears about the state of his soul, Luther needed a God he could trust. Luther needed to cling to the God who keeps promises and the God who loves the world for Jesus' sake. And sometimes that God seems hidden. Just ask poor Abraham. After 25 years of waiting, God gives Sarah and Abraham a son. They name him Isaac, which means laughter. After 25 years of tears, 25 years of heartbreak, 25 years of wondering if God would come through, God does come through. God vindicates God's self and God's chosen family by fulfilling the promise of a son. But in chapter 22, God seems to renege on that promise. God demands Isaac back as a whole burnt offering. Now we know the end of the story. We know that this is a test, or at least that's what the author of Genesis calls it. We know that God provides a substitute, but this very test seems to impeach God's character. What kind of good God would ask a father to do such a thing? And to the son by which God's promises are to be fulfilled. Abraham has already lost one son. 
He expelled Abraham, uh, he expelled Hagar, his slave wife, and his son Ishmael on God's command, on uh, Sarah's demand. For all we know, Abraham doesn't know if they are alive or dead. And now, God demands Isaac. God fulfilled the promise, but it sounds like the promise is to be taken away. What is remarkable is that Abraham utters no word of protest. He did so when he tried to spare Sodom from God's wrath in Genesis 18, but not here. He just takes Isaac, his servants, and his, young, and his donkey and sets out on a three-day journey. There's no word of protest from Isaac either. There's just this haunting question in the middle of the narrative as they climb the mountain. Here is the fire, and here is the knife, and here is the wood, but where is the lamb? Abraham can only say that God will provide the lamb. Gives me chills. Little is provided as to what is going on in Abraham or Isaac's minds, let alone the mind of God. God's motives are an utter mystery. In the story, the God heretofore revealed to Abraham, God who both makes and keeps promises, is hidden. Divine command and divine promise contradict each other. How can Abraham believe in the promises of God when those promises are threatened by that very God? Abraham clings to faith in the God he knows to be merciful, just, and trustworthy. Even when command and promise contradict, even when his world is crumbling and he can't make sense out of anything, Abraham still trusts God. He trusts the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He trusts that somehow, some way, apart from anything he can see, God will fulfill God's promises, even if Isaac is reduced to ashes. The story is disturbing. Abraham obeys a command that seems monstrous. But, and there is a long, sordid history of people doing horrible things because they thought God told them to do it. But let's be clear. Abraham is not every man. Abraham is not every human being. Abraham is not every parent. And Isaac is not every son. Isaac is not every child. These two are unique in Israel's history as carriers of God's promise of blessing to the nations. God's motives are opaque. Are hidden from us. But one thing is clear, God never asks this sort of thing from anyone ever again. God's test of Abraham was unique to Abraham and Isaac's special calling as bearers of God's blessing to the nations of the world. It was part of their unique calling. 
And this line of blessing reaches its fulfillment in their descendant, Jesus. Jesus himself is a paradox. A man of the artisan class from a no-account town in Galilee who embarks upon a short career of preaching and healing. This man, rejected by his own people, his own family, and executed on a Roman cross, is the one in whom all nations, tribes, and tongues find blessing, forgiveness, and new life. This unlikely Jesus, who did not look the part of a Messiah, it doesn't matter how many times Diogo Morgado or any of those other attractive men play Jesus, he wasn't anything to look at at that time. God is not. This Jesus is the one in whom God is most clearly revealed. God is most clearly revealed to us, not in the dazzling beauty of nature, or in powerful people, or in a handsome face, or in powerful acts. God is not most clearly revealed in those places. God, Paul and Luther, rediscovered the secret that God is most clearly revealed in suffering and in the cross. This isn't glorifying suffering. Rather, it's putting power, glory, and might in their proper place. God takes something that makes no sense whatsoever to the world, a crucifixion, and makes it the means of salvation for the whole world. God truly humbles human wisdom and human strength. God indeed provides the Lamb. God provided the Lamb not just for Abraham, but provided himself as the Lamb who would take away all sins, who would provide a way through the world's madness. God is, in Christ, paradoxically, the only sense in a nonsensical world. Despite the world's absurdities and cruelties, and despite the seeming hiddenness of God amid them, God is deeply present within them, within our world. Once again, giving life to the dead and calling into existence the things that do not exist. Even amid life's absurdity, let's cling to the God Abraham knew as trustworthy. The God who is most clearly revealed in suffering and the cross. The God who makes a way out of no way. The God who may seem hidden, but is more present than we know. Rely on those new promises, those promises of new life in Christ. In him they are already fulfilled.